All right, we might as well uh, get started here. It's uh, a little past 7.15. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you this evening for the opportunity we have to look again into the Word of God. Thank you, Father, for giving us the Word in our own language. What a great privilege it is that we can read your revelation to us. And this is a great privilege, but also a great responsibility. So help us, Lord, to to have obedient hearts, even as we hear from the Word this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at uh, this section 512 through 42, where we left off last time, the apostles again before the Sanhedrin. Remember, it was Peter and John the first time in chapter 4, 1 through 31. And then uh, they ran into more opposition from the religious leaders who don't like this message about Jesus. And we were looking last time at the fact that uh, they were upset about the teaching of Jesus and the resurrection. Remember they said, you're trying to bring uh, back in verse uh, 28, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, they said. And so uh, Peter says again, we have to obey God rather than men and so forth. Verse 33, when the religious leaders heard this, this was the Sanhedrin, and now we have the Sadducees and the Pharisees, both groups here, uh, they wanted to put them to death, verse 33. But we noticed in verse 34, we were looking at Gamaliel's counsel of moderation here. Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, remember we said he's a well-known person even outside the Bible. Jewish tradition recognizes... uh, Gamaliel as uh, a leader of the school of Hillel, one of the rabbinic schools or uh, the Pharisaic schools and so forth. And certainly the most famous rabbi of his day, we noticed that Paul studied under Gamaliel. He mentions it a couple of times. And so he gets up and addresses the Sanhedrin in verse 35. And he says, men of Israel, Consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. Now, I mentioned here, we don't know anything about him from secular history. Now, one of the problems we have here is that we have the biblical account, which we believe is an inspired account, a correct account, And uh, we sometimes have a little secular history here. Uh, Sometimes Josephus, uh, I say here Josephus mentions, Josephus, remember I've mentioned Josephus before, he was a Jewish man, and we think of him as a historian. He wrote a lot of Jewish history. He lived at the time of Christ. He lived at the time of Christ and the Apostle Paul. He was a contemporary of Christ and Paul. And he left a lot of writings And we depend upon Josephus a lot for secular history from this period. But we don't know how accurate Josephus is. You know, we don't, we just don't know how accurate he is. He's just one man writing, and we have no idea. Now, people who don't want to believe the Bible, they believe Josephus is always right. 
Josephus never could make an error in his entire life, but the Bible is filled with errors. That's just the unbelieving heart. You know. So any secular source that says anything that's contrary to the Bible must be believed, and the Bible cannot be believed. So we run into some 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 difficulties here in the sense that we'll see differing accounts from Luke and from Josephus here. Now in this particular case, Josephus doesn't mention, he mentions a later Thutis. And some have said, well, Luke got mixed up here. But as I say, Thutis was a common name. Uh, So there were all kinds of revolts, all kinds of revolutions. Uh, We just don't know. We don't know if, you know, this is the Thutis that Josephus was talking about. There could be several. Thutis is a common name. Uh, It could be that Josephus is mixed up here. Now, what's interesting is many times secularists will say, okay, Josephus is wrong here. It's not that they always say Josephus is right. He's always right if he contradicts the Bible. But he's not always right if there's some other source or something, some external source. So many times, secular historians will say Josephus made mistakes, but not <laughs> if it's Josephus in the Bible, the Bible's got to be wrong. Okay, just the way it has to be. That's the way unbelievers look at things. So he gives some advice here. It sounds somewhat reasonable, doesn't it? He was killed, his followers dispersed, it all came to nothing. So he's saying, you know, this Jesus, we've killed him. Probably his followers will just disperse, and it'll come, nothing will come of this thing. You know, these kind of guys come up and they fade away. He says, 37, after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers scattered. So it's a similar thing. We do know about him. Josephus mentions him, others mentions him. He led a revolt about 86. So he mentions a couple examples of people who lead a revolt, they kill the leader, and the followers are scattered. Therefore, verse 38, he says, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them alone. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men you will only find yourselves fighting against God. So, uh, as I say here, as the Pharisees looked at the apostles' teaching, there was nothing particularly heretical at this point. The apostles living in Jerusalem and the Jews living in Jerusalem were still keeping the law. They hadn't thrown off the law. They wouldn't say like Bill Combs, we're not under the Mosaic law. They didn't say that. They didn't say, don't go to the temple. They didn't say any of those things. They were still observant Jews at this point. Remember, we're in a transition period here in the book of Acts. From the Old Testament law to the New Testament church age, grace, and all that. It's not perfectly clear. The temple's still standing. It's not perfectly clear to anybody. What's the purpose of these sacrifices once Jesus has died? It seems clear to us now, right? But it wasn't so clear then. So these people... As far as the Pharisees, as I say, they could tolerate this teaching about Jesus as long as it didn't attack Judaism directly. And so the apostles weren't attacking Judaism directly. Now, what we'll see very shortly in chapter 6 is a man arises who will attack Judaism directly, a man named Stephen. He's going to attack some of these things we just talked about. He's going to attack the fact that the temple is still central. The temple can't be central if Jesus has died. You know, we know from the book of Hebrews that those sacrifices could not ultimately take away sin. 
So Stephen is a man who's going to speak against these things, against the law, against the supremacy of Moses. He's going to exalt Jesus as the highest place here, and that's going to get him in trouble. He's going to get himself stopped. So we'll see that pretty soon. But right now, as, as Gamaliel sees it, he sees, uh, just leave these men alone, and if you're not able to stop, he says, if it's from God, you'll not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, on the surface, that might seem like pretty good advice. You know, if these people are from God, you won't be able to stop them. Uh, you'll only find yourselves fighting against God. If they're not from God, they'll fail. But actually, that's pretty crummy advice, in my opinion. I mean, it's like saying, you know, if Mormonism is, if Mormonism is from God, it'll fail. It's not looking like it's failing anytime soon, is it? You know, if we just look at, you know, if, if Islam is from God, it'll fail. Well, yeah, it will one day, maybe, but, I'm just, you know, in the short term, if you looked at religious movements and, and judged them by their success or failure, that's not the, really the way to judge religious movements. We have to judge what they teach, their doctrine, not whether they've succeeded. So this is not the best advice in the sense of, well, this movement, if it's from God, it'll, 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 you can't stop it. No, that's not, I don't think that's really the best advice. But it works well here under the sovereign plan of God because verse 40 his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So this would be the punishment, as I mentioned here, the 40 stripes less one, or 39 stripes. Remember the Old Testament said, but the judge must not impose more than 40 lashes. If the guilty party is flogged more than that, your fellow Israelite will be degraded in your eyes. So the law prescribed... You can, you can punish somebody with a, with, a, with a punishment. Remember, Israel didn't have any prisons. So crimes in Israel were punished either by punishment, flogging or some punishment, or you had retribution, you had to pay back ten times or seven times, five times, or you died. <laughs> you know, there wasn't, there wasn't any ten-year prison sentence in Israel kind of thing. So this kind of thing was a punishment to punish those who had, who had done wrong. But the point was, uh, Moses said, you can't do more than, you can't do uh, more than 40 lashes. So, so the Jews, remember, in, in order to avoid breaking the law, said 39. 39 is the maximum penalty. And so, remember, Paul says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. So Paul was punished 40, uh, five times by this particular punishment. Uh, and we, and all those are not recorded. Just one we know of is recorded in the book of Acts, but not, not all five of those. But this is the common Jewish punishment. Well, verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin. This is their rejoicing and continued ministry because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So this is in the temple courts from house to house. This is the same thing we noticed back in chapter 2 and verse uh, 46 where they were meeting in houses. You remember there were no church buildings here. So it says, uh, every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together and so forth. So they're going, they're going, they're meeting in various houses here. Uh, the only reason I mention this one is because when I was first saved, this is a verse that was used for house-to-house -house visitation. 
this is the verse that says you should go knock on doors house to house. And I've done a lot of that. Maybe you have too, you know. Nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly fine to go house to house. It's a little... It's a little tougher today because you won't get too many people open their door to you, you know, today. It's not necessarily the most effective way of evangelism. But that's not what this verse is talking about. It's talking about people having a church in their homes, meeting as believers in their homes here. This is a verse for small groups, right? It fits that better anyway, doesn't it? All right. Let's talk about... Number six here, the Hellenist presence and problem in the church. It says, in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Remember, we've talked about these Hellenistic Jews before. Remember, Hellene is the Greek word for Greek, so these are Greek-speaking Jews. And these are Jews from the diaspora. Remember we talked about the diaspora? The diaspora is just a technical term for the dispersion. And so there were Jews all throughout the Roman Empire. All throughout the... They had, been, they had moved and spread in North Africa, all the way to Rome and so forth. So there were Jews everywhere. But these Jews, many of them desired to come back and have their final days in Jerusalem. And so many Jews came back if they could and lived in Jerusalem. And so there's a conflict uh, between these Hellenistic Jews who come back to the land of Israel and the Jews who were born there. Remember, the Jews who were born there, they would speak Aramaic, Hebrew. That would be their primary language. They would have been used to going to the temple, offering sacrifices and so on. But what about these Jews who lived in Rome? or up there in Corinth, or places like that. They couldn't offer any sacrifice at the temple. They were looked upon as kind of little disobedient Jews. They're, they're looked upon as not really, not, as, not, not what they should be. So what I'm saying is, the Jews who lived there in Israel, they, they, they had a little suspicion about the Judaism of those who didn't live in Israel. They suspected them of not being quite Jewish enough. And but a lot of us do because where they lived and, and they, they were they tend to be involved more in the culture. If you lived in Jerusalem, it was run by the Jews. It was Jewish culture, religion, and everything. But if you live in Corinth, that's totally different. You're in the pagan society. So my point here is this, uh, this problem had been going on way before the New Testament period. This is not something that arose here in Acts chapter 6. This problem of the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews having doubts about either questions about each other, not always getting along, was a problem that just brought its way into the church. It wasn't something that just arose in the church. So these Hellenistic Jews who came back, they had their own synagogues. They mainly spoke Greek. That was their main language. They came back. They had their own synagogues. In chapter 6, verse 9, we'll see that. Um, now, estimates are hard to come by here, but estimates say that maybe 10 to 20% of the population were these Hellenistic Jews. These Jews who were born outside of Palestine and came back to, to live and so forth in Jerusalem. And that's still going on today. There's a tremendous number of 
Jews who moved back. I was just reading an article, sad thing, you know, about what's happening in Europe. They're saying that in France it's very difficult to be a Jew. I just if you read that article today, but it was about France saying that they've had a tremendous amount of migration from France back to Israel, Jews, and they think it's on the increase and increase. They were interviewing this fella who was talking about going back. The French government is trying to protect these Jews, but they can't because they're being attacked by Muslims in France. So if they wear one of those caps, you know, or if they have Jewish literature in their car, their cars are set on fire, things like that. So there's going to be a, looks like there's going to be a strong movement of Jews. They, they, I think they said 12,000 maybe next year will move back to Jeru- you know, to Israel and so forth because of the anti-Semitism in France and other countries that's developing because of the radical Islam you know, coming into to Europe and so forth. So this movement back to Israel is, is still going on. It's once, the, once Israel was established in 48, migration, and it was going on back then. So the Hellenistic Jews were mostly from the diaspora, spoke Greek. The Hebraic Jews, mostly native Palestinians who spoke Hebrew and Aramaic and preserved the traditional Jewish culture. I was thinking about that word Palestinian here because um, when I use the word Palestinian here, I'm not using it in the modern sense of the Palestinians, the, the, the Palestinians who are in the West Bank now. I'm not using it in that sense. In fact, I was just looking today. Uh, somebody mentioned that a commentary by a certain professor uh, is now available free online. So I'm looking at this commentary. I noticed at the front of it, they have put this statement that says, Professor uh, Merle, when he wrote this commentary, he was using the word Palestinian in the old sense and not in the modern sense. So, But we didn't go through and change it. He used Palestinian as equivalent to Israel. And I've, I've used to do that too because Palestine is a name that comes, goes back to Roman times. So Romans call this province Palestine. And that's why it's, it's been called Palestine. But now Palestine, Palestine means... Palestinian means a certain group of people, Arabic Arabic people who lived there in that area. So it can get a little confusing here, but I'm just using it in the geographical sense here, in that sense. So these were native Palestinians, that is, born in the area of Israel, or the Roman province of Palestine there, who spoke Hebrew and Arabic, preserved traditional Jewish culture. As I said, there had been friction between these two groups before New Testament times. So... Uh, these Hellenistic Jews complained that their Hebraic Jews were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Now, these Grecian Jews were being overlooked because having moved back to Israel from the diaspora, they had no relatives there. So here you have these families that come back, their husband dies, they don't have any family to take care of them, and so... They're being neglected here in this the in the church. Remember, they have this uh, things in common. They're taking care of each other and so forth. So they're complaining. Listen, our widows are being neglected over these Hebraic Jewish widows, and something's got to be done about this. So the twelve, verse two, gathered all the disciples together and said, "It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables." And so they say, choose these seven men. 
This phrase, wait on tables, it may not be referring to the actual distribution of food. It's difficult to, to know exactly how we are to take this wait on table. I think when we read it in English, we assume, are these people waiters? Are these, are they, uh, you know, should, are the apostles that we can't be waiters waiting and so forth? Well, it's talking about distribution of food. But the waiting on tables here, as I say, tables often denoted banks because money lenders sat at tables to conduct their business. So if you look at other texts where this phrase is used, Acts 4, there were no needy persons among them. For time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed. So money was brought to the apostles. It was distributed. Somebody had to distribute this. Now notice the phrase tables here, like in Matthew. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers. So these money changers were sitting at tables. This is the same same word here. Propizza, this is the same word. So they were sitting at tables. The money changers were sitting at tables. That's where they did their banking. Luke 19, 22, 23. Why then didn't you put my money? This is a parable Jesus is telling, remember? Why didn't, didn't you put my money on deposit? That's the NIV. But it's actually the Greek word, propizza. Why didn't you put my money on the table? Why didn't you put my money on the table? So it may be, I'm inclined to think so, can't prove it for sure, but I'm inclined to believe that what they're saying here is uh, we've got, we need to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word in prayer, and we can't take care of the distribution of this food, but in this case it's probably distributing the funds so that this food can be bought and brought to the, uh, these widows and others who need it. So they say, uh, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you. And, uh, and uh, we will turn this response, uh, seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, we'll turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to the prayer and ministry of the word. It's often noted here that the word choose, is, 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 people make note of it because the fact is that the, the, the apostles, now we have, a, we have a transitional period here because we have the church has started on the day of Pentecost, but we have apostles still, you know, and so they have authority above normal church people in a sense, you know, I mean, there aren't any apostles today. Uh, we have leadership in our churches, but we don't have apostles. But they have apostles. But even in that situation, the apostles didn't just choose these men. They left it to the congregation, we might say, to the church to choose this men. So this is one of the evidences we often point to for what's called congregational government. Our church practices congregational government. Uh, there are different types of church government, three basic types of church government. I think, our, I think our pastor alluded to this, you know, in a sermon recently. Uh, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of England, has what's called the Episcopal form of church government. And there you have uh, bishops and elders or bishops and pastors. So you have bishops who are over and they appoint the, the pastors of the church. So if you're in a Roman Catholic church here, you don't get to say who your next priest will be. You know, you don't you don't vote on your next priest if you're a Roman Catholic. They appoint who's going to be the priest. You don't have any, there's no congregational vote on anything like that. This is also true in Methodist churches, actually. 
the Methodist Church has this Episcopal form of church government. And uh, actually, it's the bishops who decide who who will ultimately be. I'm sure congregations have more voice these days, but but that's the way it's set up. Church of God uh, is like that. Cleveland is like that. So uh, our church, Bible churches, Baptist churches in particular, argue for congregational church government, that the congregation can choose its pastor. They call their pastor and choose. It doesn't mean he doesn't have authority, but it means they ultimately can choose or dismiss their pastor. They ultimately choose who their deacons will be and those kind of leaders and so forth like that. Congregational church government. And so this is one of the verses because the apostles just didn't appoint these. They left it to the church to choose these men. And so this verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose. And as I say here, they chose the seven men. Um, um, it's, you know, look at, look at their names here, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, you know, and so forth, chose Stephen. They chose uh, seven men, and uh, all these seven men uh, are probably from the Hellenistic group, we think. They say choose seven men, full of the, full of the Spirit. Uh, all seven have Greek names, so we don't know for sure if they're all from the Hellenistic group, Many people think so because they have Greek names and not Hebrew names here. Certainly we know uh, uh, Nicholas says, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. So here was a man who was a Gentile, converted to Judaism, and is now a Christian. Well, he was was, uh, a member of this Hellenistic group here. Um, So they choose these seven. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed, laid their hands on them. Now, the question is, uh, are are these men deacons, or is this the beginning of the office of deacon? And you can find different opinions about this. I'm of the opinion that this is probably the example in Scripture which later led to the official establishment of the office. If you look at 1 Timothy 3, you have an office of deacon, clearly, office of bishop, pastor, have an office of deacon. And this is probably the example. That is, it grew out of a need. There was a need here for help. The apostles couldn't do everything. They needed help carrying out the functions of the ministry here. And so, as I say here, um, the term deacon is not used, but like it is in Philippians 1, 1, Paul writes to the bishops and deacons in Philippi in 1 Timothy 3, 8-13, through 13, where we have the the, uh, we have the, uh, the requirements for the office of deacon. But what we call cognate words are similar words. Uh, the word deacon is diakonos, but we have a word distribution. See, it says, remember we talked about the distribution of the food. We, we shouldn't neglect this for the distribution of the food. Well, that's, that's this word... Uh, Diaconia. So it's related to this word deacon. Uh, verse 1, the daily distribution of the food. And the word wait on, diakoneo, verse 2. We, we don't, shouldn't have to wait on or serve. So the word diakonos means a servant, basically. And uh, the word diakonos itself, the word for deacon here, is used of other people besides church officers sometimes. 
anybody, all of us are deacons in the sense we're all servants of Christ, diakonos in that sense. But these men are specially chosen servants for a particular purpose here. And then Paul mentions them in Philippians and he talks about the qualifications. So I'm of the one who thinks that this is probably the situation that gave rise to the establishment of the office eventually. You know, eventually this office, clearly we know by the time of Paul writes Philippians, there's an office of deacon because he refers to it in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. So they they choose these seven men. I mentioned Nicholas because he says he's from Antioch. Many people think, why does Luke mention he's from Antioch? People think that because maybe, it's just a guess, but it may be true that Luke is from Antioch, possibly, and he has interest in that city. Certainly we have a lot about Antioch here in the book of Acts, don't we? So they chose these men, the the congregation did, the church did, and then the apostles laid hands on them. What is this laying on of hands? This is a symbolic act to identify them with the apostles. The apostles are saying, we identify these men. We, We affirm that these are the men who should be serving in this capacity. So it's a way of identifying, it's a way of delegating responsibility, it's a way of commissioning. I don't know if you've ever been at a service where there was the laying on of hands. You can see that using ordination councils. There's a laying on of hands. It's not that that does something to the person, you know, or gives them some grace. It's just a symbolic act saying, we approve of this uh, person. We, you know, we, we, we are showing our approval. We're standing with this person. We're sort of commissioning this kind of thing is the point. It's a symbolic act, and that's what they do in this particular case. So we come to that summary statement. Remember, we have these series of summary statements. The Word of God increased, spread, number of disciples increased, and a large number of priests. Notice that. Priests became obedient. I mentioned priest here is probably not the Sadducean aristocrats. So you've got all kinds of Levites Levites, that's the tribe of Levi. And then in the tribe of Levi, you've got the descendants of Aaron. Remember, the descendants of Aaron are the priests. They are the priesthood who serve. Remember in those courses we talked about, those 24 divisions who serve two weeks out of the year? Well, some of those are Sadducean. They're the ones who seem to be in charge. But here's here's just the regular everyday priest. And we assume that these are like Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, maybe became obedient to the faith. Well, now we come to uh, Stephen. Actually, we come to uh, critical events in the lives of three pivotal figures here. We talk about Stephen, we talk about Philip, and then we'll talk about Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus will sort of set the stage for the second half of the book. But three important figures here in the book of Acts that Luke wants to focus on for various reasons. First of all, he wants to focus on uh, Stephen here, and we could call this section, it's about Stephen, but it ends up in his martyrdom. Stephen is actually stoned for his faith and what he's teaching here. And remember, I've alluded to this, it's really quite interesting what he has to say. And he's sort of a man ahead of his time. He's a, it's, it's very interesting that what he has to say is ultimately what the Apostle Paul has to say. It's very interesting that Paul is stoning this guy. Paul is a part of the stoning. 
And yet Paul is the guy who really picks up Stephen's message and goes forth with what Stephen has to say here. Well, uh, verse 8, now Stephen, Stephen we assume here is, the Stephen just mentioned here, one of these deacons, one of these servants chosen. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Um, however, opposition arose, however, verse 9, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. So, I don't know if we've talked about synagogues. I forgot if we've talked about synagogues or not, but remember when the Jews went into captivity in Babylon, and they were in captivity there, they couldn't offer any sacrifices in the temple or anything. Uh, That's when these synagogues developed. These synagogues were gathering of Jewish families into little groups for the study of Scripture, for the passing down of the Jewish tradition and the law and culture. And when they came back to this to the land and they could rebuild the temple, they still kept these synagogues going. They still kept these gatherings together where they met. Now these were very important outside of Israel. You know, Paul on his missionary journeys, he's first place he goes, he's looking for a synagogue to find people of like faith who know the Old Testament and that kind of thing. So these Jews, they would offer sacrifice in the temple and so forth, but their main community was around the synagogue much like we have local church in that sense. Uh, in fact, the chief leader of the synagogue was called an elder. An elder. And it may be that that's where the term arose in the church. When the church, when we see Paul talking about the leaders of the church, he talks about elders and deacons. Where did that term elder, presbyteros, come from? Well, it may have, it was a natural term because it had been used in the synagogue for the leader of the synagogue was an elder. So these synagogues are places where these Jews would congregate. And here we have a synagogue of the freedmen. And these Jews are Jews from various areas, North Africa, Alexandria, you know, Asia, the province of Asia here, Cilicia, this is Paul's home territory. These people have come back to the land of Israel, remember, part of these groups that have come back, and they have established synagogues there. This freedmen, it says synagogue of the freedmen, this would be the term for former slaves and their descendants. One of the things about the Roman Empire was that people who were slaves, many people gained their freedom. Gaining your freedom in, in the Roman Empire was very possible and quite it happened quite a bit. And so there were a lot of people who gained their freedom. They were former slaves and then their descendants we're talking about here. These are probably their descendants. And they formed one synagogue or two. As I say here, there's debate as to whether we're talking about one or two synagogues. We're we talking about the synagogue of the freedmen, which concluded all these four groups, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria. Or are we talking about two synagogues, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria and Jews of Cilicia and Asia? It's a, just a debate about a technical matter there. We're not exactly sure. But Cyrene is the chief city of Libya here. I don't actually have it on the map, but that's where Libya would be at today. And uh, Alexandria, of course, the capital of Egypt here at the time, uh, is mentioned. And uh, 
Cilicia is this province in Asia Minor where Tarsus is and where the Apostle Paul comes from. And this is the province of Asia, with the capital of Ephesus here. And uh, so Jews from that area uh, come back and form these synagogues. And Stephen is having a having a opposition from these particular uh, Jewish people who have come back. Now Stephen was probably a member of one of these synagogues, these Hellenistic synagogues. There's debate about the Apostle Paul. Was he a member of one of these synagogues too, himself? Remember, he gets involved here in the stoning of Stephen. So is Paul a member of this synagogue or one of these synagogues? We don't know. Paul's a confusing figure. Because on the one hand, Paul is born out here. This is where he's from. Maybe he came back was a member of one of those synagogues. But on the other hand, Paul... Paul refers to himself two times as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says, I'm about as Jewish as you can get. You know, I'm about as, I'm a, I'm about as Hebrew as you can get. So would he identify with those Hebraic Jews, even though he wasn't born in the land, would he more identify with that synagogue or one of these Hellenistic synagogues? We, we don't know for sure. Here's what Longnecker says on page 21. I wanted to read this because I think it's a very helpful summary for us as we go forward here in trying to understand what exactly is happening with, with Stephen. Uh, Longnecker says in his commentary on Acts, he says, We have no account of the content of Stephen's preaching that so antagonized his Hellenistic Jewish compatriots. Luke labels the accusations against him as false, though to judge by his response of chapter 7, they seem to have been false more in nuance and degree than in kind. From both the accusations and his defense, it's clear that Stephen had begun to apply his Christian convictions regarding the centrality of Jesus of Nazareth in God's redemptive program to such issues as the significance of the land, the law, and the temple for Jewish Christians in view of the advent of the Messiah. What is, what is, now that Jesus has come, what's the place of the land and the law and the temple? This, however, was a dangerous path to tread, particularly for Hellenistic Jewish Christians. It was one that the apostles themselves seemed to have, apostles themselves seemed to have been unwilling to explore. And it was a path that those who had lately returned to Jerusalem from the religious regions of the Jewish diaspora would view with reticence, but also with disgust. Having originally migrated to the homeland out of a desire to be more faithful Jews, and having come under suspicion of an inbred liberalism by the native-born populace, the Hellenistic Jewish community in Jerusalem undoubtedly had a vested interest in keeping deviations among its members to a minimum, or to expose them as being outside of its own commitments, lest its synagogues fall under further suspension. Suspicion, I'm sorry. The Hellenistic members of the synagogue of the freedmen, therefore, were probably quite eager to bait Stephen in order to root out such a threat from their midst. And Stephen, it seems, welcomed the challenge. I think that's very helpful in trying to understand what's going on here. These Hellenistic Jews in this synagogue, they don't want, they're under enough suspicion as he is, as, as Longnecker says, and they don't want any person questioning the traditional Jewish beliefs, the Orthodox Jewish beliefs here, 
in light of Jesus or anything like this. So they're going to be very upset with Stephen at what he's preaching. So verse uh, 10, it says, uh, these people began to argue with Stephen. They could not stand up against the spirit, the wisdom the spirit gave him as he spoke. I mentioned here, uh, this might be a fulfillment of Jesus' promise of the Spirit because it says he could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Remember, it was mentioned, uh, Jesus says at one point, when you're brought before the synagogues, rulers and authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourselves or what you will say. The Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. This might be a fulfillment of that kind of thing. Well, verse 11 Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against the law, against God. Speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So they're they're making these charges up. Luke says, you know, false. But maybe they're not completely false in the sense Luke doesn't say this exact thing. He's not trying to destroy Judaism. He's trying to see where Judaism should naturally lead to here. Here's where the Old Testament naturally leads to fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. And that, that's, that's uh, quite a bit different here. But uh, they say, they, uh, Luke records here that they say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses. So what does that mean? Apparently, Stephen is challenging the eternal validity of the Mosaic law. Verse 11 is probably the same thing as verse 13. They produce false witness. This fellow never stops speaking against the holy place, against the law. See, to speak against Moses means to speak against the law. Moses gave the law. So apparently Stephen is challenging the eternal validity of the law. Now we know that uh, the law is uh, set aside in Christ. There, we, don't, we don't have to keep the Mosaic law. But that's not perfectly clear at this particular time. He says, uh, verse uh, 11, he says, uh, speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So he's speaking against God. Now that may tie in with verse 13. He speaks against the holy place. So it may be God and the temple, God and his institutions, So it appears that Stephen is setting aside the law, trying to set aside the law by what he's saying. But what he's saying is is also setting aside uh, the the place that God established to be worshipped, and that is the temple in Jerusalem. So this is very, you know, and I think Stephen is probably saying something like that. He's saying something, not exactly, he's not saying that directly, but... As we'll see in chapter 7, he seems to say something about these particular things, about the law and about the temple, the land, and so forth. Uh, 
verse 14. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. As I say, the same accusation was made against Jesus. Remember John 2, 18 through 21. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. Here's a sign. Destroy this temple. Now he was talking about his body. Remember it says, don't tell. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? You're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body, of course. So they had made this same accusation against Jesus that Jesus is going to destroy the temple. This is why this guy should be killed. This is why Pilate should give his consent to kill him. What we probably have here is, again, Stephen is speaking of recasting Jewish life in terms of the supremacy of Jesus the Messiah. Here's the Messiah who has come. So now you've got to rethink your Judaism in terms of what does this mean now that the Messiah has come. If that's true, then he deserves the supreme place. And that means a more subordinate role to the temple a more subordinate role to the law. Even Jesus did this while he was on earth. You ever look at this text in Mark chapter 7? It's interesting the comment that uh, Mark makes here in explaining what Jesus was saying. But this is that well-known passage about, you know, what goes into a man and and so forth. Uh, Let me read just a portion here. Mark chapter 7 and verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. That's pretty radical right there. Because clearly in the Old Testament, what goes in, you eat a ham sandwich, you're defiled. You know, you can't have that ham sandwich in the Old Testament. But Jesus says, wait a minute, it's not what goes in. That's not what defiles this. Now, let me keep reading, verse 17. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? Now, true, in the Mosaic Law period, it did defile them ceremonially, you know. But it doesn't really change their heart or anything, does it? Just eating a certain food or something like that. For, Jesus says, it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And then there's an important parenthesis here in the NIV. Here's what Mark says in parenthesis. This is his comment. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So Jesus has just set aside all the food laws in the Old Testament right there. See, right there. He's already set aside all the food laws, just like that. So we're in this transitional period where Jesus has come. We're in a transition from the Old Testament law. Mark says, reading this later, now the disciples didn't get this. They didn't suddenly, you know, say, let's, you know, let's go to Subway and get that ham sandwich, you know. (laughs) They didn't do that. No, they didn't get this. It took some time. You know, even Peter later on will see when that vision comes out, you know, and God says, take and eat up any of these animals you want to eat, and Peter says, no, Lord, I'm not eating those unclean animals, you know. He doesn't get that at first. It takes a lot of time. 
for this to, to work through. So the point I'm making here is that Stephen is challenging some of the Old Testament ideas here in light of Jesus coming. Well, verse 15. Bill, yes. Uh, wouldn't another cross-reference be John chapter 4? Um, uh, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan uh, woman at the well and uh, talking about the place of worship. And that doesn't he give a, a hint or a strong hint that the temple, you know, even now is coming to an end? Exactly, he does. He does. Yeah. That we have to worship in spirit and truth rather than it's not this physical place. But that's just a hint, isn't it? Uh, what's, what's ultimately coming, you know. Verse uh, 15 And all who were sitting in the sand, he didn't look intently at Stephen, and he saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And I say, we don't know exactly what that means, but in Judaism, we know that devout men were spoken of as resembling angels. It's the only occurrence of the phrase in the New Testament. Maybe Luke wants us to understand Stephen being filled with the Spirit seemed to bear the marks of an innocent man, possibly. Well, now we see uh, Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin. Chapter 7, verses 2 and following. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true that they're making? These are serious charges. You're trying to set aside the Mosaic Law. You're trying to you're trying to say the temple is not as important as we say it is, and so forth. That's a, that's a serious charge. Are these things true? Uh, and we I say here in the notes, Stephen's defense, it should say or, I got R there, but Stephen's defense or speech, if you look at literature on this, sometimes they call these sermons, or these they call them the speeches of Acts. This is a defense. His speech or defense is the longest one in Acts. But it's hardly a defense as we normally think of it, an explanation or apology designed to win an acquittal. Stephen attempts to explain the Christian message in terms of the popular Judaism of the day and condemn the Jewish leaders for their failure to recognize Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah or to appreciate the salvation God has provided in him. Before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, Three great pillars of popular Jewish religion were the land, the law, and the temple. You didn't speak against the land. This is our land. God gave us the land, Abraham. The law given by Moses and the temple, of course, the the place where God has chosen for us to worship. uh, Stephen's defense centers on these three areas of Jewish faith. And what he's going to say is that in light of the coming of Messiah, we're going to have to rethink. We're going to have to rethink the supremacy of the land, the law, and the temple. So first of all, in verses 2 through 36, he talks about the land. He discusses the land. And then he'll take up the next. Uh, As I say here, when Jewish leaders explain their faith in this time period... They often focused on a recital of Jewish Israel's history in order to demonstrate how God had intervened in the life of Israel with various redemptive acts. Stephen follows this same Jewish form, but what Stephen says is at odds with popular Jewish religious thought. Stephen argues, one, that God's significant activity has often taken place outside the land of Israel. 
Remember, they're emphasizing the land. This is the place God has chosen. But he's going to give some examples from the Old Testament. You know, God's done a lot of things outside of Israel. Two, whenever God meets with his people, wherever God meets with the people can be called holy ground. Remember the Mount Sinai, Moses, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. Three, though the promised land is a great blessing, it should only be appreciated, not venerated, not worshipped. Stephen's point is that Jews must not so venerate the land that they leave no place for God's further saving activity in Jesus of Nazareth, Israel's Messiah. So he begins here, and he's just sort of reciting history. He's reciting history, but he has a point to make. He has a point to make that God was with these great people, great patriarchs and so forth, he was with them even outside the land. Now, this is going to become very important, obviously, because Jesus is given that great commission, and he didn't just say, stay in Jerusalem and just live your life there. He said, go to these other places, you know. Well, can you be right with God in, in, in Corinth or Rome or America? Yeah, you can, because the land is not supreme anymore. So Stephen is starting to make that point. So he starts off by reciting some Jewish history. God was with Abraham outside the land when he was in Mesopotamia. Um, to this he replied, verse 2, Brothers and, and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Now, there's some, there's, again, we run into these sort of historical problems here trying to figure out how do we harmonize this sometimes with the Old Testament. I say here, some have seen a historical problem in that the call of Abraham is placed by Stephen in Mesopotamia before he moved to Haran. It says, while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, he's, God said, leave your country and your people. Yet the call... Yet the content of the call is stated by Stephen in the words of Genesis 12.1, which appears to place the event in Haran, if we look back to Genesis 11. However, I say, it's best to understand 12.1 as referring back to the call in Mesopotamia, or not Haran, as does the NIV, which says, The Lord said to Abraham, had said, which is also supported by Genesis 15.7. That's what we're talking about here is... Here is Abraham, and of course, we're talking about this place of Haran. Where did God call him? And uh, it looks like he actually called him probably outside of Haran in Mesopotamia. Now, there's a lot of debate exactly where Abraham originated from. Here's Ur. If you look at a map, sometimes you'll see Ur of the Chaldees there, you know. And so Abraham journeyed, for, he was a... You know, we know he was a he was a pagan worshiper of, of idols and so forth, and uh, he comes to Haran and then he comes down this way. When I was at Grace uh, a number of years ago, Grace was Grace Seminary was the Old Testament part. They were really supportive of what's called the Northern Ur theory here. You didn't know you're gonna learn about Northern Ur here, but but I was noticing on this map here. See how Ur is right here. And look at this map. This is from the Moody Bible Atlas. Look where they have Ur right here. 
they have Abraham going from here to here, right there. So there's a question about where Ur really is. You know, most most authorities say it's down here, and uh, many authorities say it's really a northern Ur up here. That's hard to know which one. The reason they don't, they don't like that they, that uh, they didn't like this at Grace is because the Bible says that this Ur is beyond the rivers; it's across the rivers. But this Ur is not. This Ur is on the east side here. It's not really across. Uh, the Euphrates River there. It's on the wrong side, actually. Uh, this one is. There's a northern Ur, a lot of archaeological and technical. So we don't know exactly. I'm just saying I don't know exactly where Abraham was. But we know he was in Ur. He comes to Haran. And then God leads him down, of course, into the Holy Land here. And that's what we're, we're talking about here, that God probably originally called Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, and uh, here, and then, uh, like Genesis 15 says, and then Genesis 12 is referring to the fact that he had called him, and he comes to Iran, and then he leads him further into what we think of as the Holy Land or Israel and so forth. Well, let's see, what time we got here? Let's look one more verse here, verse 4. Uh, so he left, uh, he left the land of the Chaldeans, and settled in Haran after the death of his father. So he comes to Haran here after the death of his father. Um, God sent him to this land where you are now living. Again, I've got a long note here about that because there's some question about exactly Abraham's uh, birth order here. As I'll just read what I have here. Another seeming problem is that according to Stephen, the death of Abraham followed... Terah, uh, Abraham's father Terah is placed before Abraham's departure from Haran. Uh, he says, uh, so he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God had sent him to this land. So as I say here, uh, Stephen's places, uh, the death of Abraham's father is placed before Abraham's departure from Haran. A comparison of the data in Genesis, however, seems to indicate that Terah lived another 60 years after Abraham left. Genesis states that Terah was 70 when he fathered his oldest son, presumably Abraham. Since Abraham was 75 when he left Haran, Terah would have been 145. Yet Abraham did not die until he was 205. The best solution seems to be that Abraham was not the oldest son of Terah, but was named first because he was the most prominent. If Abraham was not born until Terah was 130, the figures harmonized. So we're just trying to harmonize the data here with Genesis, with what we have here. So he gave him no inheritance here, verse 5, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no children. God spoke to him in this way. For, for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation. They serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country, worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after the birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs here. I've got a note here about the 400. Sometimes the Bible talks about the time in bondage as 400 years, sometimes 430 years. 400 is kind of a round number. 
you know, sometimes we just speak in round numbers. If we said, how long has CBC been in existence? If I said 15 years, I, I, would, you know, I wouldn't be telling the exact truth, would I? But that's a round number. That's approximately 15 years and so forth. And if I said, how old are you, Bill Combs? And I, I said 60, no one would object to that, would he? That's just a round number, right? That's a, a round number. It's good. All right, let's stop here for tonight.